I'm Christopher Leighton. This is Open Source. Just a month into the ferociously brutal and reckless war in Israel-Palestine. On what feels like a hinge of history, outcomes wildly uncertain, our refuge is Chaz Freeman, the American diplomat, strategist, and historian. We call Chaz our chief of intelligence in the realm of world order and disorder. Chaz Freeman calls himself sick at heart at the war crimes abounding in this war, some aided and abetted by the United States, he says. We're at a turning point, he is telling us, not far perhaps from nervous breakdown. I asked if he could help us see where we're going. Boy, you're in trouble if I'm your principal advisor. But yes, I can, to some extent. This is clearly what uh, Chancellor Schultz of Germany called a Zeitenwende. That is an epic-changing moment, oh. a time of major change in a new direction in history. We've talked before about the fact that 500 years of global dominance by the Euro-American culture, the Atlantic culture, have come to an end. But what we're seeing at the moment in Palestine is the end of settler colonialism. Hmm. Settler colonialism is a phenomenon of the last two centuries or so, and it is always accompanied by genocide. Oh. The only exception I can think of is New Zealand, where Maori power countered the British sufficiently to preserve their culture as a separate one. But if you think about it, Americans, Europeans populated this continent with Africans in tow at the expense of genocide of the native population. Mm. Same was true in Australia. The same was true in Canada. And while we accuse the Chinese of inhumanity in accelerating the assimilation of Uyghurs, that is exactly what we did with the Indian school systems, both here and in Canada. This era is over. The world is mm. now dividing into multiple cultures. And unfortunately, we still have the bad habit of expecting everyone to conform to our ways if they want to get along with us. President Kennedy memorably said that we should seek a world of diversity in which every culture could have its own development and self-expression. He was right, but that is not what we have been doing. Now we're going to have no choice but to recognize that we are one great power among other great powers. We are one civilization among multiple other civilizations. And the world's patience with us and our arrogance and presumption is coming to an end. Chad Freeman, you're a man of the big picture. All your distinguished life, you're well known as the man who interpreted Richard Nixon and Mao Zedong to each other 50 years ago. One of my favorite documents that you produced is a 500-year history of world orders since Christopher Columbus set out across the Atlantic, Vasco da Gama headed east, and the world has been realigning and shifting to power and culture ever since. I want you to locate us on that long history. We're coming out in a way of a Pax Americana, a unipolar American respect in the world. What do you see fitting together in new ways, dangerous ways and maybe even, even a livable way? 
Let me first offer a mild correction. Um, there was no American interpreter present with Nixon and Mao because Nixon didn't trust American interpreters, um, which was one part of his very warped personality. Uh, he was a fantastic statesman and negotiator, but I think it would be fair to say that his character was weird, and that was his undoing. To go to the broader question you ask, the most valuable legacy of this era of Atlantic domination of the world were various concepts of the rule of law and freedom, individual freedom. The rule of law rests on the idea of due process. That is, that it is the process that legitimizes the outcome, not the outcome itself. So if the process by which a result is reached is fair, for example, a fairly conducted election, then you have to accept the result. It's legitimate. This is eroding everywhere. Hmm. Uh, might used to make right before these ideas came in. It is returning as the standard by which outcomes are legitimated. On January 6th, we had domestic evidence of this, in which a part of the American population rejected the results of a fairly conducted election because they didn't like them. And there's a very justified fear that 2024 uh, may produce a similar result. But it's not just in the United States that we see a breakdown of justice, if you will. It's international. After World War II, the United States, which had spent the previous half century trying to persuade the world to adopt something like the rule of law to govern international affairs. We had proposed the League of Nations. We had the Kellogg-Briand Pact, by which we thought we were outlawing the use of war as a means of adjusting relations between states. Uh, after World War II, we were able to implement these ideals, and we had a liberal international order under the United Nations Charter and international law. International law, that is the rules that international law makes up, are the product of consensus. That is to say, they get their legitimacy from the fact that they are widely accepted and that there have been many countries that have participated in their formulation. We have now replaced that with something that Mr. Blinken calls the rules-based order, right. in which right. we make the rules and we decide whether we can exempt ourselves from them and who they should apply to and who not. And we see this egregiously illustrated in the current events uh, in Palestine. Israel is violating U.S. laws that say that you cannot use U.S. supplied weaponry to violate human rights. It's conducting gross violations of human rights. Israel is violating multiple security council uh, resolutions. Both domestic and international law are being violated, and you hear not a peep about this. It's all expedience rather than law. We are behaving in the manner that the Ayatollahs in Iran seem to. Mm. They actually have something called the Expediency Council, which makes policy for the supreme leadership. Um, in other words, they suspend the normal rules to reach desired results. These things are happening. This is the breakdown 
of the world order that we spent 500 years trying to impose on the world and which was in most respects a very good thing. Of course, it had bad things too connected with it. There's a very famous map of the world all in pink with 17 countries in white. Yes, yes, yes. Which represent the 17 places that Great Britain did not invade. It's an astonishing map. Uh, I've seen it in your book and others. That was not good. Uh, We humiliated other civilizations and cultures. They are suffering from a kind of post-colonial hangover. Explains a lot of politics in the so-called third world. But we also had these noble ideas of the rule of law, due process, fairness, justice, and now we no longer pay any attention to them at all. When was the last time you heard an American foreign policy justified in terms of the UN Charter and international law? We also had a renaissance in the Western world, I think always of the Statue of David, a conception, an ideal image of who we are, a beautiful thing. Indeed. We had a literature around it. We had art and culture at great depth. How would you say the culture of the world is doing these days in an incredibly interactive and in many ways newly respectful existence? Well, one of the hopeful things that the Renaissance should remind us of is that it was the product of cross-cultural communication. Yeah. Uh, we had forgotten, we in the West, had forgotten Greek and Latin knowledge, philosophy, and science. The Arabs had not. It was Roger of Sicily, a Norman ruler of Sicily, who was fluent in Arabic as well as Latin and Greek, who translated from Arabic Aristotle, Socrates, Plato, and reintroduced to us all of this knowledge. Maybe the fact that we are now going to have to respect other cultures rather than insist that they ape ours, maybe this can lead to a fusion which will bring hope back to the world. But in the meantime, I want to go back to Western culture and what what it was and what it isn't. Uh, You cannot defend Western values against rising civilizations or resurgent civilizations like that of China or India or Russia Africa Um, or Africa if you do not remain true to those values yourself. And there is no way that you can explain so-called extraordinary rendition, which means government kidnapping of foreigners and submitting them to extraordinary interrogation methods, enhanced interrogation methods, meaning torture, and defying the law by invading other countries We have troops in Syria at the moment, totally illegally. Nobody ever mentions that. And yet we are now deploying more troops to defend those troops against resistance from people who have relationships with Iran, Arab resistance movements. We've been attacked 17 times in the last two weeks in Syria. It's not, not a minor thing. The world is about to become a very unsafe place for Americans. And why? Because we have forgotten the golden rule, which is the basis of all ethics. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Or, as Rabbi Hillel put it, 
do not do unto others as you would not have them do unto you. If you break that rule, you introduce anarchy, chaos, and you subject yourself to the sorts of miseries that you are inflicting on others. Now, this is not the best moment in our, our own culture. And I am very apprehensive because I, while I respect the right of Chinese to be Chinese and live in accordance with Chinese values, or Russians to do the same, or Indians to do the same, or Africans to do the same, I'm also very cognizant that those values are not mine. They are not the values espoused by America. They are not the values that made this country great. I'm thinking of the rule of law, due process, fairness, individual rights. I'm talking about the freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, which, by the way, are in jeopardy here. The state of Florida has banned all kinds of assembled groups who speak on behalf of the Palestinians. They're banned. And we have efforts in the Congress now to expel people because they state opinions that are not those of the majority. The great, great thing about constitutional democracy is that it does not allow the dictatorship of the majority. It allows the minority to have its own views and express them and to contest power with the majority. We're losing that. That is the essence of democracy. Chas Freeman, speak of the new geometry of the world. It's not simply anything, north, south, east, or west. It does seem to be becoming the United States, Europe in a certain sense, Israel, and an axis of resistance that could include Iran and maybe Russia and China. What's to make of it? In a world that talks to itself at more levels, more than it ever has. Well, the what Fareed Zakaria called the rise of the rest, uh, the return to power of great civilizations like China, like India, the resurgence of Russia, the so far inconclusive rise of Brazil, the emergence of Nigeria and South Africa as great factors in world affairs, the coalescence of the Arab world around various ideas and positions, all of these things are creating a very new geometry. One of the immediately apparent effects of this is to empower middle-ranking powers in ways that they have not been. Uh, they were not in the Cold War. In the Cold War, every country defined itself by its relationship with the United States or the Soviet Union, or its lack of relationship with these two. That was the non-aligned movement. Now we have countries like Saudi Arabia, which are middle-ranking powers that are acting very independently, pursuing their own interests without regard to those of any patron. Which put Turkey in that I would put place. Turkey in the same position. Turkey is very interesting. Turkey is in a central position in any country's foreign policy for the following reasons. You simply cannot conduct a successful policy toward multiple countries and issues without Turkish support or acquiescence. That is Land true of Israel, Israel, Iraq, Iran, Central Asia, the Caucasus, the Black Sea region, Russia, the European Union, Greece, Cyprus, the Eastern Mediterranean, mm. the Islamic world, Central Asia, Afghanistan, the Gulf, 
Persian Gulf. All of these issues require a Turkish component. Interesting. And we have alienated Turkey. Turkey has been rebuffed by the European Union. After 300 years of efforts, the Turks have given up their effort to Europeanize themselves, just as the Russians have, and they've turned to the east and south. I go back to Russia, which is back as a great factor in world affairs, partly because of the outcome of the struggle in Ukraine. The effort to isolate Russia failed. We reoriented Russia away from Europe toward China, toward India, toward Africa, toward the Middle East. Mm. We did not isolate it. We did not weaken Russia. We have instead given it 20 months of intense instruction on how to counter every NATO military doctrine and weapon system we can think of. Um, and Russia is holding its own, or and then some. So we have empowered Russia in ways that would never have happened if we had not provoked it in Ukraine in the manner we have. Look at China. We had a cooperative relationship with China. China joined the policy of containment of the Soviet Union and helped to produce the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, China is objected to by us, not because it is communist, but because it is a more successful practitioner of capitalism than we are. I have had occasion to see new technologies that are emerging in China in the civilian realm, although they will have military implications, and they are stunning. Over one-fourth of the world's science and technology, engineering and mathematicians are Chinese, and the proportion is growing, and they are coming up with amazing things. They are in the lead in areas that are central to the global future, including combating climate change with renewable energy, wind, solar, nuclear, electric vehicles. They are the world leaders. So we are cutting off our relationship with them. We initiated uh, what is uh, euphemistically called um, a uh, reduction of risk, it was actually a decoupling from their economy. The result is that we will not participate in the advances that they make, whether they're scientific or economic. And, you know, I look at India, which we have tried to recruit as an ally, but which is far too sensible ever to sign up with anyone, certainly not us, as an ally, and has always practiced non-alignment, independent foreign policy, and sought to reestablish its own grandeur. And you can go on. I mean, South Africa, the relationship is not good. I have to keep reminding myself and our listeners that you are not some crank cottage kid. You've been at the heart of the American national security establishment for a long lifetime in the State Department, in the Defense Department, in intelligence, and you've traveled widely, you've read inexhaustibly. You speak a dozen languages. How can this be happening in your very own government? I mean, I literally... Well, it's a matter of huge distress to me as an American. I look at the current state of our affairs. We have pushed North Korea into the development of a nuclear-tipped ICBM that can hit any part of the United States. We have created a threat that didn't exist. We have persuaded the Chinese that in order to defend their territorial integrity and end their civil war, they have to beef up their nuclear ICBM force to provide cover for a conventional war over Taiwan. 
We are engaged in a global war against Russia, economic warfare, physical warfare by proxy in Ukraine. We are at odds with Iran. We have pushed Iran into the arms of Russia and vice versa. Our position in the Holy Land on what is happening now has pushed Iran and Turkey together. These are enemies for thousands of years. We have managed to get them to cooperate. What is all this about? When Lula, the re-elected president of Brazil, takes issue with us on almost every issue, when we have problems to ourselves, when Republicans are talking about invading or bombing Mexico, what is the state of our international relations? This is a matter of amazement to me. There was an item in the paper the other day, we've seen more than one, of esteemed professionals inside the State Department, maybe the Defense Department too, uh, resigning and saying, I, I can't bear this. And I'm wondering how many of the people inside what we don't understand very well as the deep state, how many people th are thinking the way you do with a kind of profound perplexity about who the hell is running things? How did it well, get out of hand? How did, it, how did it get so detached from results, common sense? We are a great continental country, very introverted. You can drive from Boston to San Francisco and never encounter someone with whom you can't communicate in the same language that you <laughs> normally communicate. We don't know anything about foreign affairs. In 1947, according to my late friend Arnaud de Borschgrav, we had 2,700 foreign correspondents reporting to a, a lively independent press in the United States. We now have uh, oligopolies that control the press domestically and around 100 foreign correspondents. Mm. When you listen to the radio or watch the TV and you see a stringer with a British accent or Australian accent, that is because we do not have people on the ground. So I thought after 9-11, foolishly, that um, foreign policy having demonstrated that it has sometimes fatal consequences for us at home, uh, we would, as a people, become very interested in foreign affairs. Two years later, the Pew Endowment did a study and they said, no, actually people have become less interested in foreign affairs. And the reason they give for this is they don't feel they understand them well enough to follow them. So they can follow baseball or the Celtics uh, but they can't follow events elsewhere. But what has changed? You and I are old enough to remember Sputnik and in the 50s, and suddenly we woke up and we were going to study science in high schools again, and we were going to perfect our own space program. Are we incapable of waking up again? No, we're not incapable, but it requires leadership. And what we have is pandering rather than leadership. Our leaders shape their policies to fit the polls. They don't shape their public statements to educate the public or change its opinion. We've seen many examples of this recently. Uh, we overreacted to 9-11 with a global war on terrorism. We're now conducting anti-terrorist operations in 82 countries around the world. We launched into invasions of Iraq, um, pacification campaign in Afghanistan, illegal 
regime change operations in a variety of places. None of them worked, but did we learn anything? It's not evident. Mm. We are the most fortunate country on the planet. To our east and west, we have vast oceans. To our north, we have mild-mannered, excessively polite Canadians. And to our south, we have Mexicans who don't challenge us in any way at all. I feel for the Mexicans. I went to the University of Mexico for a while. I've seen what we have done to that country. Our drug addiction, our addiction to guns, mm. is entirely responsible for the cartels and the disorder and the mayhem that they inflict on the Mexican people. And every Mexican knows this. We do nothing about it except talk about bombing and invading Mexico. I don't know when we will come to our senses. We clearly are capable of it. Uh, we have done so in the past, on occasion. I take a certain comfort in the surfacing of William Burns, the head of the CIA. He's now out on the road in the Middle East, off the bench. I've wondered if you, you know the man. He was our ambassador to Russia not so long ago, and among other things, was very outspoken inside the government against the United States moving NATO east. He reminds me a bit of you, a real professional, knows the world intimately, speaks his mind, takes his own positions inside a, a huge government. What does that tell you? He is a consummate professional diplomat. We have very few of those. Diplomacy depends upon empathy, uh, that is understanding the person whose views you're trying to influence is point of view and putting yourself, if you will, seeing the world through their eyes in order to persuade them to do things your way. Uh, it is mm. a technique. It is not sympathy. It's not agreeing with the other side's perspective, but it is understanding it and using it. He is expert at this. Um, he is also a very disciplined civil servant. He has accepted this job at the CIA. God knows what he thinks personally about much of what is going on. I am sure he is providing very honest advice to the president, tactful, honest advice to the president, but he is saying nothing in public to contradict the president's policies. And that is appropriate. Nobody elected him. He's appointed. But I know that he's just been sent to the Middle East basically because the Secretary of State has just struck out there. Mm. And Bill Burns is the pinch hitter on the team. He's the guy who can hit the home run when no one else can. He's the sort of person we should be cultivating. I mean, we should be trying to produce more Bill Burnses. But is he the sort of guy who could say to the president, we can't have a client state using our gigantic bombs, aircraft, machinery, to devastate the civilian population. He's the director of the Central Intelligence Agency, which is not meant to provide policy advice. What he could say to the president is the perception globally that we are complicit, encouraging, supporting genocide is doing enormous damage to our standing, and it may be irretrievable. And therefore, you should understand the consequences of your policies but he has to leave it to the president to draw the right conclusions. So far, Mr. Biden seems to be increasingly ill at ease with his own policies, but not willing to backtrack. 
go very big picture, maybe fantasy picture, but it seems obvious in a certain way that the world needs a constitutional convention for the planet to rethink government, but also the habitat. It's going to take all the world's Jeffersons and Madisons and Adamses from every continent, and it's going to take years to sketch it out and then experiment with it. Can you imagine such a thing? I think it's becoming more likely than it was for the simple reason that among the collateral damage caused by Ukraine and Gaza uh, is faith in the United Nations Charter and the United Nations. The United Nations uh, has two components. One is universal representation for all states on the model of the Westphalian Agreement, that is, sovereign equality of states, large and small. That is the General Assembly. And then it has the Security Council, which was the product of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's concept of spheres of influence managed by great powers. Mm. He had a concept he called the Four Policemen. He thought the United States would run the Western Hemisphere, uh, the Soviet Union would run Eastern Europe and the Eurasian landmass, China would run East Asia, and the British would run their empire. At the last minute, Churchill persuaded him that he had to include the French in their empire. <laughs> That's how the Security Council and the permanent members were put together. The victors in World War II remain the permanent members. That is, Russia, the United States, France. Was it a victor? I'm not sure. Uh, Britain, certainly, and China. Where are Japan, a great power? in every sense. Where is Germany, the greatest power in Europe? Where is Brazil? Where is India? Where is African representation? Where is Arab representation in this body? The Security Council no longer reflects the global constellation of power. And there have been efforts made to suggest the addition of members. But I think what has just happened in terms of the utter fecklessness of the UN, the inability of the UN to do anything, epitomized, by the way, in the outrageous attack on Secretary General Guterres by the Israeli ambassador, when Guterres said of the Gaza war, this didn't happen in a vacuum, it's a context which Israel would prefer not to recognize, namely decades of abuse of Palestinians. He was immediately attacked by the Israeli ambassador who said that he should be fired. His responsibility under the Charter, by the way, is to be objective, not to follow the dictates of any country, including our own. But I think the UN is going to have to be reconstituted. There are two ways in which there's been an effort to address this. One is often led by the Chinese, and that is the creation of new institutions that are complementary, supplementary to the institutions that came out of World War II, like the UN. So we have the BRICS. We have the BRICS New Development Bank. We have the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. These don't contest the principles of the UN Charter. They don't contradict Bretton Woods rules. They reinforce them, but they provide alternative means not subject to a US veto or a Russian veto or anybody's veto to carry out the ideals that those institutions embody. That's one way. The second way would be not tried, really, so far, would be to convene ad hoc conferences 
to draw up international treaties. Interesting. This has been happening in some areas. For example, there was an effort to prohibit landmines that was undertaken internationally. The United States and other great powers refused to participate in it. But it's a mechanism which could be used. There are other things. Uh, for example, the law of the sea, uh, which we frequently cite in our contests with China, but which we have not ratified the treaty. We helped put it together, but then rather typically, because we don't ratify international treaties anymore, uh, due to our own domestic political divisions and our unilateralism, we claim to be enforcing the treaty even though we're not part of it. We cannot resort to the dispute resolution mechanisms that the treaty provides because we're not a member. But there's nothing to stop the other members from getting together and changing the rules if they feel that's appropriate. There are technical issues that are at the heart of our disputes in the South China Sea uh, that might well be the subject of international discussion of the sort that you you uh, suggest. So there are things that can be done. My suspicion is that the likelihood that they will be done has just gone up rather considerably because of the demonstrable failure of global institutions. Mm. And you can look at the, this on key issues, whether they are the Non-Proliferation Treaty, by which we are committed to try to denuclearize ourselves, but are not doing that, we're doing the opposite, which gives signatories to the treaty the right to reprocess fuel, Iran, for example, which we are now trying to prohibit with every means at hand, and which uh, would require a country like Israel, which is not part of the treaty and has nuclear weapons, to subject itself to inspection. These institutions are breaking down. So the question is, how do we replace them? Because they're irreplaceable. Think of climate change and the Paris Please. Accords, which we've been in and on and out of, and in on and out of. And some of the crazy things we're doing at the moment, for example, we have banned silicon imports from Xinjiang, but these are the basis for the global solar panel industry. So we are making our own adaptation to solar power ever more difficult. There is a growing impatience internationally, as you can see from things like the BRICS, new countries joining that, um, assemblies in places of many countries, not including us often, to try to address these problems. There's growing impatience internationally, and with the right leadership, that can be harnessed and it can have results. Regrettably, it does not appear that we will provide that leadership. We should. China's crazy question. I look at the both the isolation of the United States and Israel in this Gaza war, as well as the divisions between them, and I think, who could be helpful? If it were me, I'd call Xi Jinping and say, you do a lot of business with Israel and with the Middle East. You have your problems, but you're out there growing very nicely. You don't invade other countries. You have centuries of wisdom in your tradition. Could you give us a hand? You have a thought on what's missing in our part of the world. Not to mention that they were apparently very helpful in getting Iran and Saudi Arabia together, despite the history, despite the odds. Who out there, starting with Xi Jinping, might be thinking, can I observe 
from a distance. You are describing how the Security Council ought to work. You could bring Russia in on this too, because they have the same interest in ending this war. Maybe they have less interest in ending the Ukraine war, because the sanctions we imposed in response to it have enriched them with oil sales all over the place. Um, (laughs) But in the case of the Middle East, or West Asia as I call it, China, Russia, France, uh, all have the same interest in ending the war. We don't have an interest in it. You know, we are taking a position there, as we did in Ukraine, that we're in there for as long as it takes. As long as it takes to do what? To militarily uproot Hamas while strengthening the political forces that created Hamas? That is what we are doing. That's what the Israelis are doing. They are jeopardizing their own future by building even more hatred. Uh, So, uh, yes, Mr. Biden is about to see, apparently, Mr. Xi Jinping in San Francisco at the APEC meeting. I don't think that's a certainty, but it's very likely. Uh, They will have a conversation. How refreshing it would be if each of them asked the other for what advice he had with regard to the problems that leader was dealing with. Xi Jinping might have some thoughts about how to cure some of the problems of the United States, like collapsing infrastructure or very poor education, a deteriorating mm. education, or addressing climate change. We might have some ideas that would be useful to Mr. Xi Jinping in not strangling the private sector in his own country and suffocating dissent and achieving security not by repression, uh, but by encouragement and incentivizing proper behavior. Maybe we should all turn to Singapore for advice, uh, because they seem to be uh, (laughs) able to manage everything very well. Yeah. We worry so much about Taiwan, but we never think of the great example of Singapore. It is a multiracial country with an elected autocracy elections that don't change the government particularly, but which do allow people to voice complaints that leaders then have to address. Um, It's not a bad model, and it happens to have achieved a greater level of income and prosperity than the United States, along with a vastly greater safety for its citizens. Maybe we could learn something. Yeah, it's an autocracy that bans all kinds of books, but you can find every one of them in their beautiful, magnificent bookstores. Of course. I think, you know, countries have nervous breakdowns. We're having one. China had one in the Cultural Revolution. Iran had one in the Islamic Revolution. India may be having one under Mr. Modi. Israel has had one under Mr. Netanyahu. And we are no exception. Do we have a therapist? Do we have a method for bringing countries back? back. We used to have an electoral process that was highly regarded, the the results of which were accepted by the majority, accepted by those who lost the election. It's not clear we do anymore. The greatest thing about democracy in the end is its ability to handle the peaceful transfer of power between different leaders. Do we still have that ability? We don't know. I hear people say Xi Jinping himself wonders if, in the long course of life, the United States has lost its edge, is over the hill. 
And of course, I think we all wonder if it could be. Uh, this is more reflective of our self-doubt than it is of Chinese conviction. Uh, there are many opinions in China about the condition of the United States. There are many people who believe that we are decadent uh, and that we are weakening ourselves with our policies. But there are others who don't agree with that at all and see the basic strengths of the United States that made us great yeah. as capable of returning. Uh, they don't see them much in evidence now, but they believe that we have a resilience which we ourselves increasingly doubt. It's a very interesting reversal. The U.S.-China relationship is troubled on both sides. We are troubled by our almost psychotic reaction to the rise of a peer, an equal power or a greater power. After 150 years in which we were the be-all and end-all on the planet, China's back. The Chinese have not adjusted to the fact that they are no longer weak and vulnerable. Hmm. And they are now strong and prosperous. They are no longer the victim of history. They are an actor in it, and no one knows how they will act. So there are widening apprehensions about Chinese wealth and power and how it will be employed. Each country is having trouble adjusting to the changes in the world and in ourselves. Chai Sreeman, it's such a privilege to catch up with you every once in a while and to see what we don't see and to hear what we don't hear. Thank you for an incredible witness on the world. And thanks for sharing it with us. Well, thank you, Chris. It was a pleasure. Chas Freeman served 30 years in the U.S. Foreign Service, then as U.S. Ambassador to Saudi Arabia, later as Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs. Open Source is proud to be a member of Hub & Spoke, a Boston-based collective of independent, creator-owned podcasts. Our shows cover everything from politics to art to history to technology. We're united around the principle that independent voices are more important than ever. You can learn more at hubspokeaudio.org.